Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Jean Hanf Korlitz, author of the novel, The Plot. There are many excellent reasons to be absolutely terrified of writing a novel. I would never tell anyone not to be afraid. On the contrary, I would say, be afraid, be very afraid, um, but do it anyway. We'll be back with Jean Hanf Korlitz after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. 
and it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Jean Hampf Korlitz, author of seven novels, including The Plot, The Devil and Webster, and The White Rose, as well as a middle grade reader, Interference Powder, and a collection of poetry, The Properties of Breath. Her novel, You Should Have Known, was adapted for HBO entitled The Undoing, and her novel, Admission, was adapted into a film of the same name. She was born and raised in New York City and educated at Dartmouth College and Clare College, Cambridge. She is married to the poet Paul Muldoon. Together, they adapted James Joyce's story, The Dead, into a theatrical production. Her novel, The Plot, tells the story of Jacob Finch Bonner a once-promising young novelist with a respectably published first book, who now is teaching at a third-rate MFA program struggling to write. When he meets an arrogant student who claims he has a -a one-of-a-kind plot idea, Jake begrudgingly agrees that that's true. The student later dies and Jake writes the story his student never got around to writing. The plot contains commentary and questions about the educational path of writers, ownership of ideas and content, and the search for truth. We began the discussion with Jean Hamp Corlitz sharing how she transitioned from writing poetry to novels. There were, a, I mean, it was a gradual thing, and, and then there was a kind of segue to very poetic prose, which was also uh, maybe a necessary stage, but not a successful stage. I, I was a student at Cambridge in the mid-1980s, and I, in the way that one heard about things before there was an internet, I began to hear some discontent from America about an essay that had appeared in the Kenyon Review by Donald Hall, poet Donald Hall. And I went to the university library, uh, the English department library at Cambridge, and I got a copy of the Kenyon Review. And I vividly remember sitting uh, in a chair in the library reading this essay. And it was very clear why people were upset about it. It was called, um, I have forgotten what it was called, but it was, uh, it was about the MFA programs, which were new and were everywhere. They were just springing up all over the American academic landscape for very good reason, because they're, you know, they're, they're relatively inexpensive programs to, to mount and they can bring in a lot of money. So suddenly every college had an MFA program. And 
what Donald Hall was saying was that these MFA programs were terrific at producing pretty good poets. And there was nothing wrong with being a pretty good poet. But the problem, the broader problem, was that because of all of these pretty good poets who were suddenly, you know, populating the landscape, it was that much harder to find the one or two in each generation who was Keats. <laughs> and the implication was, all of you people who are pretty good poets, please stop because we can't find the Keats. And I, you know, this was the kind of thing that would make people very upset. And yeah, you can only imagine today what it would do to Twitter if somebody came out with a statement like that. Stop studying poetry if you're just a pretty good poet. But I reacted a little differently. I, I remember thinking to myself, I think he might be right. I think I'm a pretty good poet. I don't think I'm Keats. And, you know, I, who doesn't want to be Keats? So I remember thinking, this may not be it for me. Poetry may not be it. And I, and I, I knew I loved fiction. I knew I aspired to write fiction. I knew I was scared to write fiction. I mean, nothing was decided in that moment. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a eureka moment, but it was definitely a turning point. And uh, I did publish a book of poems. I didn't stop writing poetry immediately, but I think I had a more sober assessment of what my future might hold. And then I met Keats, you know, my husband is Keats. And I knew that. And I knew that what he was doing was on a different plane than what I was doing. And um, it, it was all part of my gradual shift toward fiction. A separate question is, what had to happen for me to get brave enough to try it? And I, you know, that's a question I just can't answer. I mean, I, I did eventually. It took a few more years. I wrote two novels. They were rejected everywhere. That wasn't fun, but I kept going. So it's interesting that that what brought you to the writing in a way, way back in the 80s, is reflected a little bit in your book now in the plot that has to do with this criticism of writing and these questions of the pressure to produce and who owns what. And I've read that you had, I don't know if you would call it an epiphany, but you were in your editor's office to pitch something. It wasn't working. And this other story came to you. I wasn't just pitching it. I was having it rejected. I mean, it, I, I wrote this novel, which is now finally finished. I mean, literally as of two days ago, it's finished. Um, I had already written it three or four times and I was just banging my head against the wall because I, I guess I knew it wasn't working, but my editor definitely knew it wasn't working and she was rejecting it. And, and I did find myself telling her about this other idea I had. And she is so, she is such a brilliant editor. And I'm so fortunate to have her that she was the one who said, why don't you put this aside? You need some space from this. You need some distance, you know, from this book. And write this other thing, which sounds so kind of propulsive and interesting. And, you know, then we had the shutdown and I mixed into all of that my abundant fear and my abundant rage. And it all kind of came together in this um, rushing out of, of this novel. I shouldn't say rushing out. That makes it sound like it wasn't carefully done. But I certainly never had a writing experience like this in which I, I just I couldn't stop writing. And I didn't stop writing for, for four months. You can give a summary so you say what you want. 
Okay, so the plot is about a writer who uh, is desperately trying to re-attain even the tiny blips of recognition that he achieved with the first book. Uh, he's barely been able to choke out a second book, and he is now completely incapable of writing a third book. He's sustaining himself by teaching in a, a bottom, really bottom-of-the-barrel MFA program, a low-residency MFA program uh, in Vermont, and into his classroom walks this just awful, like worst of all possible students who is arrogant and he's dismissive and he doesn't he doesn't respect the teacher. He doesn't respect his uh, his classmates. He's there to kind of make connections and get an agent. And he claims that he has a brilliant novel. He's writing a brilliant novel that's going to make him rich and famous and um, will be a, uh, just a massive bestseller. And the teacher, the protagonist, uh, is uh, understandably dismissive of this idea, um, but then in a private conference, he hears the story that his student is writing and he realizes that the student is absolutely correct. He's going to have a big, big success, deserving or undeserving. He's going to be, you know, get everything that the teacher himself has not gotten with his work. And um, a few years later, he discovers that his student has died and without ever having written this book. So he has a a small struggle with his soul, and he uh, goes ahead and appropriates this story. He does not uh, copy a single word from uh, the small amount of the manuscript that he saw in, in their work together. He writes an entirely new novel based on this story. He does become extremely successful, and um, but unfortunately, he can't enjoy it because he's too worried that somebody will come out of the woodwork and accuse him of something nefarious, and then someone does. So that is that's some total of what we what we can say because everything else would lead to, uh, I would say, a, you know, a decreased ability to enjoy this book. There are so many kind of upheavals and twists, and we just we just want people to get a chance to enjoy them. You know, this came to you out of this, this, and you were saying you're writing out of, you know, maybe some fear for the pandemic and rage and you wrote it really, really fast and wrote furiously all day. And I was curious about the quality of your writing sessions when you write like that. Like what is the beginning of your day compared to the end of the day? And what was it like at month four versus month one? Month four is easier, always easier than month one, because month one, you don't know what you're doing. It doesn't matter. How, you may know much more about the book you're writing than I knew uh, when I started writing the plot, but you still don't know these people. You don't know what they look like. You don't know where they come from. You don't know why they're there. You don't know what they're going to say to one another. Um, by the end, you're just tearing along behind your own thoughts. You're, you know, holding on for dear life. It's... Uh, I'm not one of these writers who just loves writing. Somebody <laughs> cleverer than me said, I love having written. But certainly it is, you know, month four is just a breeze compared to month one. What did it, did you feel it in your body? Sort of like the idea of this? I kind of did. I mean, I, I, I'm as plagued by doubts and anxieties as any other writer. Um but with this book, I really never had that 
particular voice that this wasn't going to work, that it nobody would care. I did have some concern about writing about a writer because there seems to be this conventional wisdom out there that uh, readers aren't interested in writers. They don't want to look behind the curtain. They, uh, you know, there's too much navel gazing involved. Um, so I did have that anxiety, but I, you know, whereas with every one of my other books, I've been plagued by who cares? Nobody wants to know. Nobody's going to read this. This time, no, I, I for some reason, I, I just felt comfortable. And I, I mean, it, it doesn't mean I, I haven't been incredibly pleasantly surprised by the reception of this book because you can have all of that confidence and absolutely nothing will happen. But, um, but yeah, I, 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 I wasn't tormented this time by that particular, you know, demon of doubt. Let's talk a little bit about Jake. He's the main character. He is the, the writer and the teacher. And one of the ways that you crafted him that I really, really enjoyed and I went back and forth between reading it and listening to it. So I had kind of two experiences. Uh, one of the things that really struck me about Jake was how you created him really multifaceted in the sense that the things that he said and the support he gave his students was so earnest. And then what was going on in his head was so different. So you could see his duality. And I wanted to ask you about crafting that and how carefully you did that. I don't think I was particularly careful. I think I was having a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, I've certainly been accused of, of letting loose on the uh, creative writing community. Um, and it is true that I did not get an MFA myself, but I have friends who love their MFA experience, feel that they were helped by them. One of my best friends uh, did a low residency MFA and loved it. So, I mean, I, I, there's nothing wrong with these things. I think what's wrong is the kind of give us your money and we will make you a successful writer kind of um, thing. I'm not probably all that different from what Donald Hall was saying in that essay in 1983. Um, that these programs are terrific in many ways, but they're, it's not like you have to build a laboratory to, to create a program like this at your university. You need a room and some chairs and a table, and you too can have an MFA program, which will graduate writers who are credentialed to teach an MFA program. So, I mean, let us, let us have a small amount of cynicism with which we regard this. So... <laughs> yeah, I was asking about Jake because it, it, not only was he, uh, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't, I didn't read him as duplicitous, but he had this outer life and this inner life. I mean, same yeah. thing when he, he, he met people or went on the journey that he had to go on and it created so much tension. Well, you know, he has a work ethic. He's a, he's an honorable toiler. Uh, he respects the work that other people are doing, uh, although he has an awareness of the ridiculousness of what they're doing. Um, he, he's not a, a bad person, I don't think. So, yeah, I mean, if he's taking money to be a teacher of creative writing, he does his best to be a teacher of creative writing, even if he may not completely believe in what he's doing. Uh, he doesn't have that, uh, you know, that privilege anymore. 
because he hasn't been successful as a writer. He's not supporting himself as a writer. This is his work. You know, your book really does interrogate this issue of the pressure to produce. And is that what we are in some ways? Do you ever feel like writers are are reduced to their next like that they're only as good as their next work. And how how does that pressure fit into the artistry of it? You know, it's a really good question because, I mean, I, I was thinking about this because I was thinking of the excerpt that I would read from a book that had moved me. And it is a book from 1983. Um, this particular writer has gone on to uh, write books that have made her famous. But ironically... I do not respond to that, those books, those later famous books, as much as I respond to this particular book. So for, you know, for me, the question has always been, you know, what is the book that moves you rather than who is the writer you most admire? Because every writer, except maybe Jane Austen, who is incapable of disappointing with anything she ever did, um, you know, even my favorite writers, there are books within their works that, uh, disappointed me. So um, it, it's more of a publishing issue um, in terms of the next book, doing better, being better respected, finding a wider audience. But if you wrote a single brilliant book in 1983 and never wrote another word, I'm not going to respect you any less because I am so wowed by the thing that you did. Yeah, it, it that pressure I think is reflected in so many things. I mean, that's in 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 a way why these MFA exists. It's like you get into the 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 industrial complex of the writing industry and it seems like there is generally this path that it's harder to deviate or it's harder to maybe be experimental. I don't know if you've experienced that, but well, kind of. I mean, a literary career is almost an absurd thing to talk about because you have no control over it. It's like, you know, when I, my children are now in their, you know, early and late 20s, but 20 years ago when a lot of women I knew were having babies and they talked about their birth plans, I just wanted to like laugh at them or yell at them because you can't control childbirth. You know, you can, you can put together your playlist and your, you know, favorite scent. Um, but it is not about your playlist and your favorite scent. It's about having a healthy baby and surviving the birth. Um, and you know, you, you can put plans into place for the literary career you want to have, but I wouldn't invest too much time in it because it's not going to be up to you. And if you need any proof of that, look at mine. I mean, I, I've been at this for 25 years and nobody had ever heard of me until Nicole Kidman walked across their screens in a green coat a a little over a year ago. And did that bother me over the last 25 years? You bet. I mean, I'm a human being. I, I'm full of envy and, and, uh, you know, all sorts of other low emotions. Um, and but for all of the kind of cursing of my lot over all of these years, I am happy now, not just because I've finally found an audience with book number seven. I'm happy that I got to write those books. I'm happy that I had uh, people who believed in me 
in spite of the fact that I had not been successful and, and were willing to take a chance on me over and over again. I mean, am I proud that I picked myself up over and over again and wrote another novel? Absolutely. But, you know, I, I'm just, I'm full of gratitude. I really am. It's definitely better for your life to be full of gratitude than take another path. Sure. Um, but I mean, I, I don't want anyone to think that I'm, I'm such an awesome person that I didn't spend my twenties and thirties full of envy at my contemporaries who were, were doing so much better than I was doing, you know, a first novel catapulting onto the bestseller list, um, contemporaries who'd written one or two books who were, you know, instantly installed into the, you know, the canon. I mean, I'm not saying they didn't deserve it. I'm, they did. But, I, you know, there I was in my corner writing novel after novel that nobody was reading, and it was a very hard thing. So, you know, feel free to plan for your literary career just as much as you plan for, you know, giving birth. But, you know, don't be surprised if it doesn't go the way you want it to. Which, which is kind of what Jake was going through. You know, he was going through a lot of these feelings when he alighted on this plot that he, you know, as you said, he didn't plagiarize a single word. He took this plot, he wrote it himself, and it, you know, brings up the idea of who owns an idea. And we're yeah. seeing that also lived out because while I was also reading it, everything was breaking up in in the New York Times about bad art friend unbelievable <laughs> Sorry. yes and I did get a lot of people saying well what do you think and uh, I mean look I, these these questions will never go away we are obsessed with them we artists um, and not just writers you know uh, chefs obsess about stolen recipes comedians obsess about you know lifted jokes uh, but I think it's because we are word people that we perhaps invest even more importance in language and who it belongs to and where where it all comes from. These are, you know, the mysteries that we circle around constantly. I am certainly not the first uh, novelist to write about appropriated uh, language, ideas, experiences, I could name half a dozen books on my shelves right now that um, have touched on some element of this. And believe me, when the plot came out, people began to say, oh, she stole that from here, she stole that from there. I mean, I object to the word stole, obviously, but I would never claim that anything in the plot came out of, out of nowhere, except I will say that the story of the plot within the plot is one that I personally have never seen anywhere before. Um, so there is that. But, but you know, the professor of writing who can't write, we've seen him before. He is not a new entity. Do you have any specific philosophy you've sort of curated about, like, who owns stories? I, I don't know that I would elevate it to a philosophy, but I will say that um, I have adapted uh, the work of another author um, a few times. Uh, well, my husband and I adapted Joyce's The Dead as uh, an immersive theater piece, which ran for three years in New York City, um, three holiday seasons in New York City. Um, we made changes to that holy of holies of texts 
um, to in order to uh, amplify an idea that we had about uh, something that we thought Joyce was trying to communicate or communicating. Um, in addition, I've written two novels that were based in, in some sense on other novels or other stories. Um, my novel, The White Rose, is based on the Strauss opera De Rosen Cavalier, which was based on a French novel of a previous century. Um, my novel, The Sabbath Day River, in some sense, is based on The Scarlet Letter. Um, so I am for this. I, I, I have no problem with this at all. I think it's part of the conversation. I think it's part of our weaving and reweaving of, in some cases, extremely old stories. I think that is a good thing. I think if you don't think that is a good thing, you may not have thought about it that thoroughly. Um, as far as um, appropriated ideas, I also think that is a good thing. I mean, Flaubert had never been a depressed, suicidal, middle-aged woman. You know, Tolstoy had never been a <laughs> suicidal Anna Karenina. We have to jealously guard our right to pretend that we are people different from ourselves and write about that experience. If you, uh, if you think that is not permissible, you are saying um, that novels can only be written about our personal lived experiences. That's going to really cut down on the number of novels that get written. Uh, that is going to clear our bookshelves of some of the greatest novels ever written. I'm not okay with that. I'm also not okay with anybody telling me what I'm allowed to write. I, I have my own inner censors that do a great job of that. You don't have to worry about about that. I'm, I'm on it. <laughs> but um, these are very slippery slopes that we are on. I think too, like in, in culture today versus like Jane Austen, where maybe she read something in the paper or went to a salon or had a conversation with someone, we have so much stimulation and we don't even know how like a line that we've heard in the office, because we've watched that episode 20 times, comes out through one of our characters' mouths and we are not aware of it. Yeah. I, I mean, I insist on pointing to this as a positive and joyful thing. Um, it's a celebration of ideas bouncing around from The Simpsons to Flaubert to, you know, uh, Hawthorne to The Lion King. I mean, to Shakespeare. You remember Shakespeare? Uh, I think I read that only one of Shakespeare's plays was based on an original idea. So let's just recalibrate our thoughts about what is an original idea. You know, if it's good enough for Shakespeare to take the Irish legend of King Lear, L-I-R, and spin it into something else, then it's okay for me to take the Scarlet Letter, um, move it to the 1990s, put it in New Hampshire, and make it all about Jews. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I would be open to hearing arguments about why that isn't okay, but they better be pretty good because it doesn't make any sense to me to start uh, telling people, you know, don't even bother to come to that blank page if you are not, you know, uh, if you're not there with something that has never been seen before in all of art. 
I, I'm not up to that standard and I don't think anybody else is either. Yeah. I love in, in Elizabeth Gilbert's big magic. I don't, have you read that? I have read that. Yeah. Her, her idea, it's almost metaphysical that, that ideas and themes are like floating around above us. And if you don't catch it, someone else will that, that maybe, maybe it comes back to that idea of there aren't that many storylines when you come back to like, like Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and that sort of thing that um, in mythological terms, there's only a few stories. And I'm wondering if you think that's true. You know, th this is probably one of those moments when I would say greater minds than mine have uh, have grappled with these questions. I certainly, you know, I I, I read the Campbell books, and it's, it seems to make perfect sense to me. But I haven't made an exhaustive study myself of, you know, uh, drawing those connections between all of those different mythologies. I certainly was obsessed with Greek mythology as a, as a kid. That's still the most important book I ever read was Dallaire's book of Greek myths. Um, you could write an entire lifetime of novels just out of that book. When you were writing this, how have you learned, maybe through experience, maybe it's instinct, maybe it's um, having a therapist mother, to modulate tension and suspense how have you, I mean, it's hard maybe to put into words. I think it's almost a process of elimination. If you are, if you find yourself revealing something that doesn't need to be revealed, you have to go back and do it again. You know, you don't want it to be too easy. You don't want it to be too obvious, but it can't be too obscure and it can't be crazy um, at the same time. And I, I don't know how you learn that. Although I can offer the example of, you know, I've got it on my bookshelf right here. I have a, I had a cousin named Helena Hanf who wrote 84 Charing Cross Road, which is a, a book that is beloved by book people. Um, but she also wrote a, a memoir about her failure uh, as a theater writer in the 40s and 50s in New York City. She'd gone to New York to be a, a great playwright and had failed. Uh, and... This she wrote this uh, memoir called Underfoot in Show Business about her failure in uh, in theater, and at one point while she was failing as a playwright, she took a job in television, which was brand new, and she found herself writing the Ellery Queen mysteries, and the Ellery Queen mysteries in the 1950s were filmed live, and TV was not yet you know what it became, and it was an underfunded uh, medium and she had to churn out these scripts every week in which she was only allowed to have five characters. And one of the characters was Ellery Queen. One was his father. One was the victim, which she called the corpse. <laughs> and then there were two other characters. And out of those two characters, she had to create a mystery every week. And um, what she learned by doing this over and over again were all of the ways to do that without being obvious, which sounds like an incredibly, almost an impossible task. But she, you know, she basically had to solve the same problem every week. And she said doing it taught her more than Aristotle and Stanislavski had ever been able to teach her about creating tension uh, and suspense. So I, you know, I piggybacked on that lesson a little bit. And I think the translation is, 
you can't have too many characters. You can't have, you can't cheat by making somebody, you know, a long lost twin or a, a clone or a, you know, a split personality. It has to make sense and it can't be obvious. And, you know, somehow you just figure it out, I guess. I mean, people guess, people have guessed the big twist in the plot. They love to tell you that they guessed. They love to tell you what page they were on when they guessed. Uh, but a lot of people don't guess. And I, I think it's because I don't insult their intelligence. I hope that's why anyway. You wrote a novel inside a novel. Well, pieces of a novel. Because Jake was writing this famous novel called Crib that he, you know, uh, that's what brought him all this fame. And it's a very different tone and different style of writing. And I wanted to ask you the experience of that. Well, thank you for saying it's a different tone, a different style of writing, because that was a big concern. I, uh, I had to go out of my way to make Jake's voice different from Gene's voice. Um, but at the same time, I wanted, I wanted him to be a good writer. I didn't want him to be a hack um, there, there are many reasons that Crib succeeds, but I think one of them is that it's well-written. So I really wanted to give him that credit. As far as writing those chapters of the novel within the novel, I did everything I could to get out of it. I, when I first turned in the manuscript, it didn't have any of those chapters. And, um, I, I had, I had heard a podcast interview with Lily King, in which she was discussing writers and lovers, which of course is also about a writer who is writing a book throughout the novel. And towards the end of her novel, uh, the protagonist novel is the subject of a bidding war, a publishing bidding war. And the interview said, interviewer said to her, how come you didn't give us a little, a little taste of the book? And she said, I, I realized that no matter what I wrote, it wouldn't be good enough, you know, to justify all of this publishing excitement. So I just decided to be mysterious and not submit anything. And I said, awesome, I don't have to do it either. And when my editor said to me, hmm, weren't you going to give me some chapters? And I said, oh, well, Lily King's not doing hers, so I don't have to do mine. And she said, yeah, you do. You have to do it. So, so I did it. You know, it wasn't fun. I didn't enjoy it. Uh, it's like, oh, I just finished a novel. Now I have to write another novel um, uh, with a different voice and different characters and different settings in it. You know, it was... It was like getting back into the gym after you've been on a cruise and gained 20 pounds, I guess. Is there any part of you that wants to finish Crib? No, not really. I mean, I, 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 I'm glad I didn't have to write the entirety of Crib. I wrote just the, just the good bits. Um, and I have been asked, hey, you know, you had this idea. Why, why didn't you just take the idea, this big idea, and write that novel? And, you know, that's a, that's a very good question. But it was always part of a bigger idea. It, it, was a, it was, you know, two pieces of this idea that came at the same time. This washed up novelist who, you know, whose path is crossed by this brilliant idea and what that idea was. So they came as a package deal, maybe if... It had come alone, the plot of the plot. I would have written that novel, but obviously I'm glad that's not what happened. Yeah, I mean, you would have missed so much commentary, so much 
Um, a lot of fun too. Yeah. Yeah. And do you believe writing can be taught? Oh, so, okay. I had this conversation with my husband who has been teaching creative writing for many years um, all over the world, but mainly at Princeton. And we had a, you know, we had a different answer. My answer was no, (laughs) it can't be. Uh, And his answer is it can be taught as much as learning to play the violin can be taught or you know, learning to paint can be taught or learning math can be taught. I mean, you, you can't make somebody a mathematician, but you can teach them how to do equations. So his feeling is that anybody can be made a better writer. Um, you know, I take ballet twice a week. I'm not going to be Maria Tolchi. You know, that's not going to happen in my life. But uh, I'm better than I was a few years ago. So... Somewhere between no and yes is my answer. Is there anything else about the plot you wanted to talk about before we go to the final questions? I guess I I was talking about this last night with my friend, Christina Baker-Klein, who um, also in the middle of her career uh, wrote a novel that exploded, her novel Orphan Train. And we were talking about, you know, the, the randomness of that really. And the fact that the the novels that Christina wrote before Orphan Train were fantastic, you know, um, but nothing happened with them. Um, And there is this kind of randomness of how um, an audience can find you. Um, But you understand that there's, I mean, the novel that I wrote before the plot was nobody read it, but it was, a. I thought it was a really good novel. It had lots of twists of its own, lots of suspense and, you know, surprises. I have been proud of the books that I've written. Maybe not the first one. <laughs> I tell people, don't bother with that first one. It was very much a kind of a first pancake in the pan, but it's random, but it's, you know, if you embrace it for this kind of Thing that happened beyond your control, you know, out of your birth plan, out of your career <laughs> intentions, then, you know, it, it's a beautiful thing. And I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for this. I mean, I'm grateful for all the people who have told me that they, having discovered my work, they're going back to read those earlier novels. I mean, it's incredibly gratifying. Yeah. And it's probably a good lesson from where you've been, although maybe you'll disagree that your identity has to be so much more than whether you succeed or fail. Yeah. The great thing to be proud of, and, you know, if there are people listening to this who find themselves in this situation, if you sit down again and again and again to write um, without having had the experience of a quote-unquote successful book, my hat is off to you. I respect you. I appreciate what you're doing and keep doing it. And just one more side question before I get to the final question is I wanted to ask you about your pop-up book. Oh, sure. Events. Thanks for asking. So I, I run this little thing called Book the Writer, and we have, um, we have pop-up book groups. Before the pandemic, we were gathering in, um, in New York City apartments with authors, small groups of people who have all read the book, sitting down with the author, 
it was fantastic. I mean, we've had many, many authors, everyone from Elizabeth Strout to Erica Jong to Adriana Trigiani. I mean, it, it was terrific. And then over the pandemic, uh, at first I resisted going online because the in-the-room experience is so important, but my regulars were just begging me to do it. So we went online and we had a, a different kind of great experience with people joining us from all over the world. So just Zoom conversations with authors um, with the advantage of people being able to join us from, you know, South America, and Australia and Europe and all over America. So now we are kind of tiptoeing back into rooms. Uh, let's see, we, we had Alexandra Andrews who wrote... Um, who was Maude Dixon last week. Uh, and then a couple are still completely online. We just had Russell Banks a few nights ago. Um, but mainly we're trying to have small groups in the room. And then we have also uh, people joining us on Zoom and it's actually working. So um, I'm encouraged. Um, I love doing it. I love watching readers connect with authors, authors they've admired for years, authors they've just discovered. Um, we have still about six or seven in our fall uh, schedule, including Jimpa Lahiri and uh, Chang Ray Lee. And we have the, I have it right here, the, the new Sylvia Plath biography. Um, Heather Clark, the biographer, is, will be doing a pop-up book group. So anybody can register. Um, just go to bookthewriter.com and sign up for our mailing list, and then you'll find out where, where to register. And the imp was the impetus just the connection between people? That was part of it. Um, I lived in Princeton for many years, and I ran the book group as a book group where the authors came. Uh, I ran it as a fundraiser for a charity. And when I moved back to New York about 10 years ago, I decided to see if it could be a business. And uh, that's, you know, how it came about. But it's been very gratifying to have these really wonderful conversations about books so far beyond where do you get your ideas and what's your process? Um, largely because everybody has read the book. I mean, they arrive ready to talk about, you know, uh, on a much deeper level than you would get when you, you know, understandably you go to your bookstore to hear the author speak or read, you're buying the book, but you haven't read the book yet. In these conversations, it's a, it's a much deeper thing. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? All right. So I may or may not have referred to this novel already, maybe even more than once um, in our conversation today. This is uh, a novel from 1983. It's Marilyn Robinson's first novel, uh, Housekeeping. Uh, I cannot say anything more uh, about the relationship of this novel to the plot without ruining things for people. So I will not do that. But um, the final page or so of this novel has always stood out to me as just unbearably beautiful. And this is, uh, it, it, it's a passage I can read without ruining anything for anybody. Um, it's really about the characters in a sense, but you don't need to know that. It's it's also about the, just the sheer beauty of this language. I'm not jealous. <laughs> She's a magnificent writer, and this is an extraordinary achievement, this novel. So this is, th this is the end of Housekeeping. All this is fact. 
fact explains nothing. On the contrary, it is fact that requires explanation. For example, I pass again and again behind my grandmother's house and never get off at the station and walk back to see if it is still the same house, altered perhaps by the repairs the fire made necessary, or if it is a new house built on the old site. I would like to see the people who live there. Seeing them would expel poor Lucille, who has in my mind waited there in a fury of righteousness, cleansing and polishing all these years. She thinks she hears someone on the walk and hurries to open the door, too eager to wait for the bell. It is the mailman, it is the wind, it is nothing at all. Sometimes she dreams that we come walking up the road in our billowing raincoats, hunched against the cold, talking together in words she cannot quite understand. And when we look up and speak to her, the words are smothered and their intervals swelled and their cadences distended like sounds in water. What if I should walk to the house one night and find Lucille there? It is possible. Since we are dead, the house would be hers now. Perhaps she is in the kitchen, snuggling pretty daughters in her lap. And perhaps now and then they look at the black window to find out what their mother seems to see there. And they see their own faces and a face so like their mother's, so wrapped and full of tender watching that only Lucille could think the face was mine. If Lucille is there, Sylvie and I have stood outside her window a thousand times and we have thrown the side door open when she was upstairs changing beds and we have brought in leaves and flung the curtains and tipped the bud vase and somehow left the house again before she could run downstairs, leaving behind us a small, a strong smell of lake water. She would sigh and think they never change. Or imagine Lucille in Boston at a table in a restaurant waiting for a friend she is tastefully dressed, wearing, say, a tweed suit with an amber scarf at the throat to draw attention to the red in her darkening hair. Her water glass has left two-thirds of a ring on the table, and she works at completing the circle with her thumbnail. Sylvie and I do not flounce in through the door, smoothing the skirts of our oversized coats and combing our hair back with our fingers. We do not sit down at the table next to hers and empty our pockets in a small, damp heap in the middle of the table, and sort out the gum wrappers and ticket stubs and add up the coins and dollar bills and laugh and add them up again. My mother, likewise, is not there and my grandmother in her house slippers with her pigtail wagging and my grandfather with his hair combed flat against his brow does not examine the menu with studious interest. We are nowhere in Boston. However Lucille may look, she will never find us there or any trace or sign. We pause nowhere in Boston, even to admire a store window, and the perimeters of our wandering are nowhere. No one watching this woman smear her initials in the steam on her water glass with her first finger or slip cellophane packets of oyster crackers into her handbag for the seagulls could know how her thoughts are thronged by our absence or know how she does not watch, does not listen, does not wait, does not hope and always for me and Sylvie. Is there anything else you want to say about why that moved you? It just, you know, it is so magnificent. It leaves you kind of full of hope and full of despair. And it is the perfect ending to um, this beautiful, beautiful short novel. I mean, it's a short novel. It's just over... 200 pages of, you know, rather large type, actually. I, I remember when I finished it the first time thinking, I will never, ever, 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 ever be able to write something so beautiful. So, yeah. But I, but I, I, 
I paid my homage to this novel in ways that may be clearer to some of your listeners than to others. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, now this was a fun question. Um, I'm actually going to read the um, brief forward to the novel that I was in my editor's office getting rejected on that fateful day. It is now finally done. It is has been written more written and rewritten than any other novel I have ever written, but it is finally, I mean, I just went through the, the copy edited manuscript. Uh, I finished going through it yesterday and I felt I am so happy with this novel. I'm happy for every, you know, everything that had to happen to it to get there. But no, no passage was more rewritten than this uh, brief foreword. Um, because it is the first page of the novel, uh, I will not say anything about it, but um, please know that every single word <laughs> in this brief excerpt uh, was changed and changed and changed and changed again. Uh, and here it is. The Oppenheimer triplets, who were thought of by not one person who knew them as the Oppenheimer triplets, had been in full flight from one another as far back as their ancestral Petri dish. Not one of the three, Harrison, the smart one, Lewin, the weird one, or Sally, the girl, had a speck of genuine affection for either of the others, or had ever once thought of a sister or a brother with anything resembling a sibling bond, let alone as counterparts in a tender and eternal family relationship. And this despite the years of all-consuming effort from at least one of their parents to say nothing of the staggering advantages they had enjoyed, beginning with the not inconsiderable price tag of their making. No, a lingering discontent overhung each of those three and had, since they were old enough to glean their shared origin story, judge their parents, and basically make up their minds about the other two. For 18 years, they'd been together, from that Petri dish to the crowded maternal womb, to their shared home on the Brooklyn Esplanade, and their shared summer cottage, not really a cottage, on the vineyard, and their shared education or indoctrination in Harrison's view, at the lauded Walden School of Brooklyn Heights, where a frankly socialist ethos stood in bald contrast to soaring tuition. And at no point did they ever grow closer, not even slightly, not even out of pity for their mother who had wanted that so badly. And then they were 18 and not just leaving home, but desperate to begin three permanently separate adult lives, which is exactly what would have happened if the Oppenheimer family hadn't taken a turn for the strange and quite possibly unprecedented. But it did. We did. And that would make all the difference. And what's the title? A Latecomer, which is so appropriate given everything that this novel went through. It was already called The Latecomer, but now it's not only called The Latecomer, it is The Latecomer. But it's coming. It's coming in May. Where do you write? Um, I'm not uh, finicky about where I write. I mean, I'll, 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 the only place I don't write is at a desk. I mean, every chair in the house has been used. I write on my bed a lot. Sometimes I'll go out to a coffee shop. Um, anywhere but a desk, ironically enough. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I love flea markets and antiquing and, you know, garage sales and things like that. So a happy day is when I'm off to the local flea market. Very happy day. 
Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, actually, a friend that I mentioned earlier in our conversation, the one who went to the low residency MFA program, she's a novelist who lives in California, and she's one of my best friends from college, and she's read everything under the sun, and she's a great reader and a great uh, critic. How have you dealt with rejection? Not very well. <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> Reference our previous conversation about my, uh, you know, bad attitude and... Uh, envy and all of those other, you know, deadly sins. Um, I think, you know, with age, you, you take a longer view. And um, if you're not grateful, you know, that that may be a a deeper philosophical problem you have to deal with. But um, certainly at the time, it was, it was awful. (laughs) And what is your favorite word? I don't think I have a favorite word. I, I've noticed that I use the word actually a lot. I have to prune my actuallys, actually. Um, I, I think one of the uh, holdover effects of my uh, years as a poet is that I'm very finicky about um, word use, and I, I will not you know, use a word in subsequent sentences or... Um, if it feels kind of clunky or awkward or it just sounds bad, I will, I will change it or remove it. And I, I have noticed, especially as I've gone through the copy edited manuscript of the latecomer recently, that um, often the word that I am excising is actually. So I'll, I'll just go with actually. Jean, thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. Thanks, Mitzi. I appreciate it. It was uh, was a lot of fun. It was very thought-provoking. If you like today's show with Jean Hanf-Korlitz on her novel The Plot, check out my interview with Anna Quinlan on her novel Alternate Side. We talked about our human similarities, the creation of a bell jar atmosphere in her books, and the false idea of closure. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of nearly 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Evie Wild, Susan Orlean, Charlotte Wood, and Thriti Umagar. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.